Good evening, New Hope family. I'll add my welcome to that of Michael's, and I'm glad that you could be with us tonight. Um, many people have written in and asked how they could be preparing for Easter. We talked about this a little bit on the live stream Wednesday and how we prepare our hearts. W what we just did, what Michael just led us through, that's one way of preparing our heart for Easter, what you're doing tonight and being part of this. It's getting your heart ready for the celebration that Sunday morning is, even though it's different than what it's been in the past. Uh, another way I wanna encourage you to consider getting ready for Easter this year is that I'm gonna ask you if you would do what Michael and I are gonna do and what the tech team has to do to be here, which is um, get dressed for church on Sunday morning. I'm, I'm gonna encourage you to dress for Easter as though you were coming to church here physically, but rather you're gonna be in the comfort of your home. And perhaps some of you will be watching from work and perhaps some of you will be watching from a car in a parking lot, I don't know, but wherever you're watching from, I'm gonna ask that you would prepare your heart to be at church by dressing yourself in that way, not in sweats and not in pajamas, and what an imprint that would make on your children. I know somebody's already pushing back on that. I've already heard notes from people saying, I don't know if I like that too well, but trust me on this, you'll feel differently being part of the service that way. Here's another thought though, you might really register with this one. I'm gonna encourage you to write a note to yourself. Write a letter or journal. Something that you would put in an envelope and tuck away in the back of your Bible about what God's doing in your heart right now. How is this period of time at Easter different from all the others that you've gone through? What is God showing you? What is God teaching you? Are you spending time in his word? Speak to yourself a year from now that you can read a year from now and look back on this time and remind yourself of what you're walking through, what you're experiencing. I think you'll find it really powerful one year from this point. We find ourselves in the midst of Good Friday and you see examples of things here I'm gonna show you in just a minute. You see a flask, and you see a basket with the bread in it, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But we find ourselves here at Good Friday, and it's been called many things over the years. Stepping back to the time when that song was written that Michael just did for us, it was known as God Friday or Long Friday. Some knew it as Black Friday. Others have called it Holy Friday. It, it arrived at this definition of Good Friday at some point in the last couple hundred years. We've, we've known it by many different names. The word good means a lot of different things to a lot of people. But at the time that it was transitioned over to, the word good meant pious or holy. When I hear the word good, I, I think of something entirely associated with good. I think of the, the good that God's doing not only on our behalf if we're believers, but for good, meaning Romans 8, 28. We know that verse well. We spent time in it. You know it if you're a church person. Romans 8, 28 sounds like this if you're new to church. God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. But you always have to balance Romans 8, 28 against Romans 8, 32, because Romans 8, 32 speaks about the price that was paid in order for Romans 8:28 to be true. For God to cause all things to work together for good, it cost him the price of his son. 
the perfect sacrifice, that God delivered him up is what Romans 8.32 says. So they're only four verses apart, but one talks about God working together for good and it, it makes this promise of the ultimate hope, but 8.32 talks about the cost that was associated to do that. In context, what we're really talking about is what the writer of Hebrews wrote of in chapter 12. He said it was for joy that Jesus endured the cross, for the joy that was set before him. Not that the cross was fun in any way, I don't mean to imply that. He said, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, and he goes on to say, maybe you've read Hebrews chapter 12 before, if you haven't, hear this. He says he despised the shame. We're gonna talk about that on Easter morning. What does it mean for him to have despised the shame? but he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And I'm I'm asking right now, what image comes to your mind when you think of that? When you think of Jesus on the cross, enduring it for the joy that's set before him, what image comes to your mind? You might recall that in Hebrews 12, it speaks very clearly uh, about something going on in that chapter. It talks about a race. It talks about a cloud of witnesses. And the picture is kind of like a grandstand and individuals who've shown up to look upon a race that's taking place in a forum in front of them. Well, in the ancient games of Greece, there was always a pedestal that stood at the end of a finish line at the end of the race. After the race was accomplished on the end of the pedestal, there hung a wreath and that wreath was the reward for the victor. It was the winner's prize. No one runs a race, no one enters into a race, no one competes in a race without an expectation of a reward, a medal, a ribbon, in the case of the ancient Greeks, a wreath. Sometimes the reward is fame. Sometimes it's just a more fit body. The reward is there though. You're running for a purpose. You get greater health. Occasionally, the race is for the exhilaration of it but not the kind of race Hebrews 12 was talking about. The kind of race that Hebrews 12 was talking about is called the agnon. In other words, that's where we get the word agony from. The agnon, or what we call today the marathon. Maybe you've run a half marathon, or you've run a full marathon. That's in the Bible called the agnon race, the agony race. No one sets out on that kind of a race without an expectation that there isn't something to look forward to. So for Jesus, it's the joy set before him that he begins that marathon of events on Thursday afternoon, that marathon that he's entering into, knowing what's on the other side of Friday, knowing what's not only waiting for him, but knowing what's waiting for me and what's waiting for you as a result of the marathon. So let's together, I'm gonna put a couple verses on the screen. This will go really fast, but let's together remind ourselves more fully of the circumstances that are associated with what Jesus went through. And here's a big reminder for you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you understand that these events that we're talking about tonight, these are all part of God's perfect plan. We said last Sunday that God has a plan and he's working a plan. It's a perfect plan. So here's what Acts 2, 23 says. It's gonna come up on your screen. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan 
God's got a plan and he's working a plan according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So we find this day is a dichotomy. It's full of joy because here we are 2,000 years removed from it and we get the benefit of what happened on that Friday. But it contains not only joy, it contains discomfort. Because this day of all days, it bears the fingerprints. The fingerprints of our fallenness. My fallenness and your fallenness and all of humanity's fallenness. Yes, Jesus was delivered over by Pilate and by Judas and by the soldiers and by the empire of Rome. But he was also delivered over by you and I. We all bear responsibility. So if there is a lineup of suspects guilty of putting Jesus on the cross, we would all have to peer alongside a worldwide population of our ancestors who've gone before us and those who are not yet born because we're all guilty of sin. Scripture says this in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means you and I have the fingerprints on the weapon. One prophecy really stands out among others, and I want you to see this prophecy. Look with me on the screen and read this along with me. Psalm 16.10. Hundreds of years written in advance of Jesus, yet this is what the psalmist wrote, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, meaning to the grave, speaking of Jesus, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. What the psalmist is describing there is that Jesus had a confidence as he looked toward the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What's the confidence as he looks forward? Well, that verse, that prophecy you just saw was actually a reflection of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is just an echo in the future of what Psalm says there. Here's what it's telling us. Jesus knew going to the cross that God was at his right hand and he would not be shaken. Let me give you another prophecy. And this one also was written hundreds of years before Jesus, but Isaiah is very descriptive in what Jesus endured. Look with me at Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. That passage written hundreds of years in advance is an absolute match for what we just looked at as a church on Palm Sunday. I don't know if you knew this, but Palm Sunday had another name in the first century. It was known as Lamb Selection Day. You have a day when you go out with your family and pick out a Christmas tree. Some of us have artificial trees. Some of us bring live trees into the house. And that means somebody went out and selected that Christmas tree. Well, there was a lamb selection day in the first century. Families would go out and choose their lambs on Sunday afternoon, the Sunday before what we know as Easter. So on lamb selection day, the family would go choose their lamb that would represent their family. Look with me at Exodus 12. You'll see this on your screen, Exodus 12, 3. Tell the whole community of Israel, this is way, way, way back in the Old Testament. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household, 
That's lamb selection day that's talking about. So as the lamb of God, Jesus on what we call Palm Sunday, they called lamb selection day, Jesus is riding into the city late in the afternoon of that particular day. On the day we call Palm Sunday, Israel is selecting its lamb for the Passover. And maybe this is new news to you, but on that Thursday, the Thursday after Palm Sunday, that's the day they begin the process of slaughtering their lambs. And it happened at twilight. Look with me at the screen one more time. This is a follow-up to what you just saw in Exodus, Exodus 12, 6. Take care of them, meaning the lambs, take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. We know that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane that particular evening of that same day. That's a match for what you see in 1 Corinthians 5-7. Look at 1 Corinthians 5-7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Or this one from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1.19, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. That's talking about a Passover lamb. This is the exact same imagery here. So from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, Jesus is revealed to you and I throughout the Bible as our Passover lamb. That's why you're gonna find yourself one day in heaven The book of Revelation says in chapter five that you're gonna be declaring worthy is the lamb that was slain. From the foundation of the world, worthy is the lamb that was slain. So the lambs are chosen and the lambs are chosen on that day we call Palm Sunday and they had to be visible to the family for four days before Passover. And historians tell us something really remarkable about that period of time. Historians tell us that every single one of the sheep that were prepared during that period of time in the first century, all of them had to come from Bethlehem. Can you imagine? What irony that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and all the lambs for the Passover had to come from Bethlehem and they were brought into Jerusalem through the sheep gate and only sheep from Bethlehem could be used and were raised for this purpose. So I have my Bible open to Isaiah 53 and I have it open to Romans. I already shared with you in Romans 8, 28. But in Isaiah 53, it gives this prophecy of Jesus. It says, like a lamb to the slaughter, he was led to his shearers, to the slaughterers, as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he didn't open up his mouth, he didn't say a word. That's what it says in Isaiah 53. Read that later. Isaiah 53 is a description hundreds of years before Jesus of what he was going to go through. Watch this, church, how that's a match for Matthew 27. Look at Matthew's account of what Jesus went through. Matthew 27, 12. While he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. When you hold all the power of the universe in your hand, and you keep your tongue silent, 
When you can call a legion of angels, all he had to do was say the word. He said, do you not think, Peter, that my father in heaven would not send angels to rescue me? More than 10,000, myriad upon myriad. When you hold that kind of power and keep your mouth silent and allow yourself to be tortured, even though all your friends abandon you, Jesus holds his tongue. And you and I today, 2,000 plus years later, we find ourselves remembering that moment, that death, because the beauty of it is it brought you and I life. His death brought us life. So Jesus, as a result of all those things he did, everything that you've just seen laid out in very few moments here, he personally gave us a way to remember. And he gave us the cup and the bread in order to do that. Scripture says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast Follow that up very quickly with Luke 22. Luke 22 says, and when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you think the imagery of the lamb was powerful, and maybe you're new to New Hope, maybe you haven't seen this before, we we try and review these two elements each year on Good Friday. I want to tell you about this bread that Jesus is talking about. You see in this basket before me these matzah crackers, and if the camera can catch it, you see that it's very, very thin. It's because it has no leavening in it. It's bread without any leavening, therefore it can't raise. It's completely flat. Well, this is the type of bread that Jesus was holding. It was probably much less of a cracker because it would have been fresh, but it had no leavening in it to raise it. It's very, very unique specifically to the Passover meal. Three things had to be true of Passover bread in order for it to be legitimate, in order for it to be used for a Passover dinner. It had to be unleavened, no leavening, and that's why you see it as being flat. Because leaven in the Bible, in Scripture, is a symbol of sin, meaning it would puff something up. That's what sin does. It puffs you up. It's prideful. Well, it's unleavened because he knew no sin, Jesus had no sin in him, and so he's holding up this bread, which says, this bread is going to represent my body. And here's another thing. It had to be striped. I don't know if the camera can pick it up. Do you see the burn marks? No one knows where that occurred in history. Even the most astute scholars don't know when exactly that began, but it was long before the time of Jesus that when they made and baked the leavened bread, unleavened, It had to be striped in order to be used. Well, the body of Jesus was striped with a Roman whip. And then another thing had to be true. It had to be pierced through. Most scholars think it was pierced as a result of the fact that they were trying to get the air out of it so it wouldn't puff up. We understand that if the holes were missing, it could not be used That's a complete match, everything that you've just heard for Isaiah's prophecy. Let me just show you this on the screen, Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. That was carried out at the crucifixion with the nails and the spear that pierced his body. 
the piercing of the bread reminds us of that. But we don't stop there. It's hard for you and I today to appreciate just how bloody the sacrificial system was. Take that a step further. It's hard for you and I today to appreciate just how bloody and brutal the crucifixion was. Isaiah 52, I, I challenge you to read this today. Isaiah 52, 14. It's a prophecy of how disfigured Jesus would be. The word that's actually used there is marred. That he would be marred so much in his face, so disfigured that he would be beyond recognition. Many scholars, as they study that, understand that what it's actually saying is that people would look upon him and say, is that even human? Is that really a man? That much disfiguring. So watch verse 20 of Luke 22. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The symbolism of the cup is just as powerful as the symbolism of the bread. We understand in the Passover, according to what Exodus tells us, in the Passover Seder, the Passover meal, some things had to be true of the cup and that there were four cups. And the first cup was known as the cup of sanctification, which meant that God sanctified his people. And so he would say to them, I will bring you in. That was the first cup. The second cup was known as the cup of plagues because they had just lived through the period of time in which they had witnessed the plagues in Egypt. And so that cup reminded them that God would free them. So that cup, the cup of plagues, was known as the way God will free them. And the third cup, that's the cup we're talking about tonight. As we understand the Last Supper and what Jesus did with the disciples, that third cup was known as the cup of redemption in which God communicated to his people, I will redeem you. I'm going to bring you in Israel and make you my own. There was a fourth cup as well. It was called the cup of praise and we get to do that in a minute when we worship together. We're gonna praise God. Typically that was followed by the Hallel in which people would go out and praise him. In context, let me put this all together in a sentence to wrap this up for you. God the Son condescends to become Jesus the man. And he's gonna love, live among us and he's gonna love on us and he's gonna show us what life looks like when you're living life with God, what it's supposed to look like. And at the end of that, when he's done everything that he came to do, he allows humans to fasten him to a wooden cross using steel pins by men whom he formed and they're gonna drive it through his wrist and through his ankles and they're gonna pin him to that thing as they pierce his nerves and they pierce his tendons for the purpose of suspending him on this massive wooden beam on this instrument of death. So catch this church. While humanity is in the midst of our most horrible 
evil. God is at work doing his great good, his perfect plan, because God causes all things to work together for good, even if it didn't seem like it in those moments. If it doesn't seem like it as a believer right now, the things that you're going through, God says, I've got this. I'm causing all things to work together for good. The darkest hour God was using for good. On our very first weekend back together, I'm gonna celebrate with you communion. Michael and I have talked about this in advance. We, we think this would be a really cool way for the church to be back together to celebrate using the elements. We, we would love to have done it together tonight. Couldn't quite, quite figure out a way and it, it would leave some people out if we tried to do it virtually and asking you to get elements at home. So here's what we decided to make it a celebration of our first weekend back together to take communion together regardless of what weekend it falls on so that we can celebrate and it will make that first gathering all the more special. And we'll review some of these details again just in case you need to be reminded of it. So here's how I wanna end. I wanna end with reminding you with what was going on this day on Friday. Look with me on the screen, Acts 2.23. This is where we started. Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, delivered over by God and by us, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put to death. Well, I'm so glad it doesn't end there, aren't you? Aren't you so glad that that's not the end of the story? We have John 19 to remind us it's not the end. Look with me. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I'd love to keep going with you, but that's another story. We'll get there on Sunday morning. Can I pray with you right now just before we step into worship? Let's praise God for what these elements represent that we're gonna take together hopefully very, very soon. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the songs that we're about to lift up to you. I thank you for the clarity of what your word shows us. Thank you for what you've just revealed and reminded us of again. Your word is truth. Your word is life. You've shown us in this story that our Passover lamb was prepared before the foundation of the world in eternity past and in eternity future. We're gonna be praising our Passover lamb. Thank you, Father, that we have a lamb who was slain and he's worthy because his blood was offered to buy us back. We praise you for that reality in the name of the one who paid such a great price, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.